0: Welcome to historically inaccurate, wholesome heritage moments with Megs, where I delve into some of Canada's most interesting pieces of history and culture. Here you'll get to hear your favorite stories, usually extended cuts from my TikTok, Megs reads good, with extra little tidbits of information along with my lukewarm takes. Today we're going to delve into the notorious milkshake murder, so grab your favorite drink, maybe not a vanilla white spot milkshake, and settle in because I have feelings. Before I get into the story, I want to acknowledge that Eve Lazarus' book, Murder by Milkshake, was instrumental in my research for this podcast. There's so much more to this story, and I highly recommend a read if you're interested in reading more about this case and the people involved. Vancouver is full of landmarks, and some of those landmarks have darker histories than others. One you may or may not think about when driving by is the Toys R Us on West Broadway and Alder Street. You know, the one with the huge neon sign. Built in 1958, the BOMAC sign was built for Bowell-McLean, the used car dealership that used to sit on the site. The BOMAC sign stands at an impressive 60 feet high, which also happens to be about 215% taller than the current bylaws dictate. When it was built, it was the tallest freestanding sign in North America, and the tallest structure in Vancouver outside of the downtown core. Around this time, Jimmy Pattison, yes, that Jimmy Pattison, was the manager of Bowell McLean and was always trying to outdo the Duick Chevrolet Oldsmobile dealership down the road. One time he hired the Levy brothers, they were seven-foot-tall twins, to hang out on the lot with a monkey dressed in overalls. The sign cost around $100,000 at the time to be built. It weighed around 12 tons and required a transformer that could illuminate an entire city block to power it. On June 4th, 1965, CKNW, the famous radio station, launched a promotional campaign for Bal McLean called The Guy in the Sky. It put a member of the radio station's promotional department, Rene Castellani on top of the Bomax sign, where he would live in a station wagon that was perched on scaffolding next to the sign until every car on the lot was sold. Now, please don't think that Rene was put out by being in this car. The car had bedding in it, a direct line to the CK&W booth below, and even a chemical toilet. On June 12th, Rene finally descended from the tower and was given two days off for his efforts. And while you might think that having to live in a station wagon on top of a giant neon sign might be unpleasant, some might say that Rene's wife, Esther, had it worse since she was laying in a hospital bed mere blocks away from Rene dying. Rene met 21-year-old Esther Luand at a church function in 1946. They dated briefly and were married that same year at the Holy Rosary Cathedral on the corner of Richards and Dunsmere Street, with a wedding reception held at the Stanley Park Pavilion. Their daughter, Janine, was born in 1953. She attended Little Flower Academy as Rene made his way through a variety of different jobs and moved them from house to house. Even when he was finally able to purchase them a home in Carisdale with the help of Esther's father, his persistent get-rich-quick schemes lost them the house and forced them to move into a tiny apartment above a hair salon. Eventually, René found his way to CKW, where he proved to be both a talented writer and vibrant on-air personality. He was well-known for his routine as the Dizzy Dialer, where he would call businesses around town and ask them absurd questions. He would end each call with, you've just been had by the Dizzy Dialer. His skit became so well-known that people could pick out his voice when he called them. Renee's newfound fame caught the attention of the 22-year-old CKNW Night Secretary, Adelaide Ann Miller. But you may know her as Lolly. If you're trying to do the math, Renee met Lolly in 1962, which would have made her around 15 years younger than Renee's wife, Esther. Lolly's co workers called her Lolly the Dolly because of her assets. Dolly had been married to a truck driver named Don, and they were living out in Coquitlam with their son, also named Don. Six months after Dolly started at the station, Don died in a boating accident. Dolly received $25,000 in life insurance. That would be around $240,000 now, if you were wondering. Rumors about Renee and Lolly spread quickly throughout CKNW. Apparently, it was common knowledge that the two were having an affair. It probably didn't help that Renee was driving his CKNW van around town during his little tryst with Lolly. One colleague saw Renee driving the van up Smith Street in New Westminster. When he inquired as to who lived on Smith Street, he was told it was Lolly Miller. Discretion wasn't Renee's strong suit. Renée went as far as to bring Janine to the station where he would encourage her to play with Lolly's son, Don, creating a friendship between the two. Towards the end of 1964, Esther confided to a friend that she had found a letter in Renée's wallet that was signed, Love, Lolly. Later, she would receive a $60 phone bill from Renée phoning Lolly in Hawaii. That's around $560 now, and you thought roaming charges were bad. Renee's explanation? Lolly had accompanied DJ Jerry Davies on a promotional tour of the Hawaiian Islands and she just happened to pick up when Renee called. Around this same time, Esther started experiencing stomach aches. She blamed it on her love of coffee and two pack a day habit. But then that New Year's Eve, after attending a party, she awoke with another stomach ache. This time she blamed it on the gin it's always the gin. But still, she went and saw a doctor who said it was due to her poor eating habits. He diagnosed her with gastroenteritis and prescribed her an antacid as well as an anti-inflammatory drug. Towards the end of January 1965, Esther started receiving anonymous phone calls about Lolly. She had started feeling better physically, but her marriage was in turmoil the next month, complaints reached Bill Hughes, the CKNW station manager, that a woman had been repeatedly calling the switchboard looking for Rene. She called one morning around 8.45, and when she was informed he wasn't at the station, she told the operator that he had claimed he was heading into work early that morning. One afternoon, she called and the operator informed her that he had left early for the day. Rene was not happy about them sharing his whereabouts with his wife. The operators complained about the phone calls to Bill. Bill had attempted to squash the rumors about Lolly and Renee's affair, but when he started receiving reports of the CKW van being parked outside Lolly's house, he knew he had to talk to Renee. Renee assured him that there wasn't any substance to the rumors, but Bill told him that he better end it or he'd let them both go. Lolly's boss also gave her a talking to, but she continued to lie about the affair. She would go on to tell her neighbors that Renee was in the middle of getting a divorce and that they would be married once it was finalized. Renee had never spoken to Esther about a divorce. In fact, during this time in B.C., Divorce law was still governed by the UK Matrimonial Causes Act of 1857, which stated that you could not get a divorce unless adultery was committed, and even then, the divorce had to be mutual. In Rene's case, if he was to seek a divorce because he'd met someone else, he'd have to be separated from Esther for five years before a divorce would even be considered. Vancouver was still quite conservative at the time, and if you wished to procure a divorce, you would have to have your intent published in the local paper daily for six months. It would have to include the date and place of your marriage, the details of why your marriage didn't work, as well as the person your spouse was having the affair with. That would have been quite embarrassing for Renée. That March, Esther's stomach issues came back. After enjoying a gin brunch at the Georgian Towers Hotel, Esther's abdomen started to hurt, her chest was tight, and her back also hurt. She spent 12 hours vomiting. Again, she went to the doctor, who said that she was looking a bit plump and thought her issues were due to overindulgence and that her gallbladder might be inflamed. He gave her medication and urged her to manage her weight. But despite watching what she ate and cutting out coffee, Esther continued to be sick. During this time, the Castellanis moved again, this time to a duplex. It was Jeanine's seventh move. Nothing was unpacked due to Renée's tendency toward never being around and Esther's illness. Esther's condition continued well into May. She was throwing up everything she ate and was unable to work. Her family was concerned that the doctors hadn't done any actual tests, And so she sought a second opinion with an internal medicine specialist, Dr. Bernard Moscovich. After visiting her at home after a bout of throwing up, he had her admitted to the hospital for investigative testing. It was around this time that Esther told him that she was experiencing tingling and numbness in her fingers and toes. Her first week at the hospital showed improvement. She was able to eat and was in better spirits. Her blood work looked better but the numbness in her fingers and toes had gotten to the point where she couldn't walk when she smoked cigarettes it was a different time really she had to hold the cigarette at the base of her fingers because she couldn't feel the cigarette otherwise renee's co-workers knew that esther was quite ill and in hospital which is why they were shocked when renee told them that he was going to go through with the guy in the sky promotion After the promotion wrapped up, Bernie used those two days off to take Janine to the hospital to visit Esther. During that time, he had been up on top of the sign, Esther's face looked less puffy, and she just looked better on a whole. Janine was upset with her father because he wanted to leave as soon as they had arrived at her mother's hospital room. Carl, Esther's brother, knew that something was up with Renee and suspected that he was having an affair due to the amount of hours that Renee was claiming to work. He knew a company like CKW wouldn't have Renee working until the early hours of the morning, like he was claiming. Renee had told Carl that he had a meeting at the Bayshore Inn, now the Weston Bayshore, that he had to leave for. Carl didn't believe him, driving by the Bayshore to confirm. The CKNW van was nowhere to be seen, so he called the station to ask if there was a meeting booked in at the Bayshore. There wasn't. Carl went to Esther and Rene's house at 3.30 in the morning to wait for him. He never showed up. That was all the proof Carl needed. Esther remained in hospital, and while she was still laughing and joking, she became unable to move her own body the nurses would have to do it for her. During this time, Lolly had attempted to purchase a home on her own. Renee and Lolly were told that it would be difficult for Lolly to be approved for the mortgage on her own, so they applied under the names Mr. and Mrs. Castellani. Later, they would meet up with a real estate agent, where Lolly would introduce Renee as her fiancé. When asked when they were getting married, they responded, two to three weeks. By the end of June, Esther was barely eating. Her caloric intake was so low that the doctors told the family to bring in any food that they thought she would eat. Esther's sister-in-law, Sheila, walked into Esther's hotel room to find Renée spoon-feeding Esther some leftovers her mother had brought. Esther looked uncomfortable. Sheila told Renée to stop, but he wouldn't. Esther complained that she didn't like the way the food tasted. It was nauseating her. Renée told Sheila that if Esther wasn't going to eat it, she should flush the food down the toilet so that Esther's mother wouldn't be upset. When the nurse came back in to check on Esther, she applauded the empty bowl. Sheila followed her out into the hallway to tell her that Esther hadn't eaten it. The doctors had been tracking her food intake closely, and she didn't want them thinking Esther was taking in nourishment when she actually wasn't. The next day, Esther was having difficulty breathing and started showing signs of heart failure. Dr. Moskovich put her on oxygen, but it didn't seem to offer her any relief. On July 11th at 10.25 a.m., Dr. Moskovich pronounced Esther dead. He then informed Rene that he wasn't comfortable signing the death certificate and would be requesting an autopsy. Janine picked out her mother's outfit for the funeral a powder blue skirt and jacket with a cover-up that Janine said she had most likely purchased from the hills of Carisdale. She also picked out her mother's casket. Janine was 12 years old at this time. I had to pick out my father's urn and headstone when I was in my 20s, and I was nowhere near prepared for that, so I can't imagine 12-year-old Janine wandering through a casket room deciding which color lining her mother's casket should have. The day after the funeral, Lolly and Rene headed to the bank to finalize their mortgage application. They put it through on the strength of Lolly's credit, but with the understanding that Lolly and Rene would have to submit their marriage certificate to secure the mortgage. After their meeting at the bank, Rene packed up the CKNW station wagon and took Jeanine, Lolly, and Dawn to Disneyland. His colleagues noted how unbothered he seemed about his wife's death. He told everyone he was taking Janine on a road trip to California, that they would camp in the back of the station wagon on the way. He never mentioned that Lolly or Don would be joining them. The new family stopped at motels along the way, Renee and Lolly sharing the bed, and Don and Janine would take the pullout couch. Janine said that Esther was never mentioned again. When they got to Anaheim, they checked into a motel that was owned by Renee's friends. He introduced Lolly as his sister, even though they were in the motel registry as Mr. and Mrs. Castellani. Janine said that she was never given the opportunity to mourn her mother. Ernie was not a husband saddened by losing his wife. The day after her death, Esther's body was transferred to the morgue for autopsy. Dr. Moscovich discovered that all her organs had been compromised, and he went on to look into the various elements that people can be exposed to across their lifetime that may cause this type of damage. Arsenic was one of those elements. Arsenic would explain the perpetual nausea and vomiting along with the numbness in her feet and toes. Its symptoms closely mimicked that of gastroenteritis. Due to the fact that it is virtually tasteless and undetectable, arsenic was a favored poison throughout the 1700s and 1800s for doing away with people you didn't want in your life anymore. Esther's arsenic test came back showing that her levels were 800 times higher than they should be. The case was turned over to the coroner, Judge Glenn MacDonald. If Glenn's name sounds familiar, it's because he was the coroner in Vancouver from 1954 to 1980 and oversaw one of Vancouver's most infamous deaths, the death of Errol Flynn. One of my favorite facts about Glenn is that after he retired in 1980, he admitted that he would occasionally lie to Catholic priests so that those who had committed suicide could be buried on consecrated ground. He would tell the priest that he hadn't reached a conclusion about the deaths yet. The body would be buried, and only once it was safely in the ground would he complete the death certificate. Esther's case was the first case of arsenic poisoning that Glenn had encountered since becoming coroner, and he turned to one of my favorite places to do some research, the Vancouver Public Library. Empowered by his findings in the Cemeteries Act, Glenn ordered Esther's body to be exhumed and advised the police that he would be treating her death as a homicide. Obviously, Rene was their number one suspect, and when detectives went to question him, they asked how it would be perceived if he had a girlfriend when his wife died. Renee's response? Do you think I'm stupid enough that I would give her anything that could be traced, Detective Reed? Eve actually interviewed Vancouver Police Department Superintendent Mike Porteous for her book, and she had asked him why Renee would have kept the can of orthotriax around knowing that he had poisoned Esther. His reply sums up Renee in a nutshell To me, it isn't that odd. How would he know that the arsenic would ever show up? He's not a sophisticated criminal. This guy in the criminal world is kind of a putz. For months, Eldon Riotout tested everything that Esther could have come into contact with, from the dirt surrounding her grave to the embalming fluid that was used at the funeral home. He tested exhibits taken from Esther's home, like hairspray and suntan lotion. Within the exhibit was that can of Orthotriox, a weed killer, which had the highest concentration of arsenic. Eldon checked and found that over three ounces was missing from the can more than enough to kill someone if ingested over the course of six to seven months. He went as far as to dissolve some of the chemical in milk and taste it for himself. He spat it out immediately, but found that the chemical dissolved quickly and left no taste in the milk. He also found that the highest concentration of arsenic was in Esther's scalp, indicating that she had consumed a large dose right before her death while she was still in hospital. Knowing that Esther was unable to move, it ruled out suicide. The first time Esther's family saw Renée since the funeral was at the inquest where he showed up with Lolly. She was wearing a fur coat that Gloria had gifted Esther. Renée had also brought his lawyer with him. Who brings a lawyer to a coroner's inquest if they're not guilty? On March 31st, 1966, Renée and Lolly applied for their marriage license that would take effect on April 4th. Knowing that marriage would protect Lolly from testifying against Renée, police arrested Renée that day, just before midnight. Janine woke up to Lolly crying. That morning, she took the bus to Little Flower Academy, where she would only remain to finish out her seventh year. Renee's criminal trial began on October thirty first, nineteen sixty six, Halloween. How fitting. Doctor Moscovich testified that Esther had been reasonably comfortable for the first two weeks that she spent in the hospital, and that the day after Renee came down from the Bomax sign, she started exhibiting signs of nausea and vomiting again after eating her evening meal. Two nurses testified, as they had at the coroner's inquest, that Renee had brought Esther's favorite vanilla white spot milkshakes to her, although they couldn't say with confidence that she had consumed them. One did note, though, that Renee had asked her when she thought Esther might die, which was obviously an odd question for her husband to ask. The prosecution argued that Esther hadn't received any arsenic while Renee was up on the Bomax sign, but the test results couldn't be exact. The prosecution argued that it wasn't a coincidence that Esther showed signs of improvement while Renee was up on the sign, and that her condition greatly deteriorated after Renee visited her for the first time in weeks. The jury believed what the prosecution was saying, and on the ninth day of Renee's criminal trial, he was declared guilty. When asked if he had anything to say, Rene replied that he had nothing to say. The judge declared, the sentence of this court is that you be taken to the prison whence you came and remain there until Tuesday, the 21st of February, 1967, when you shall be taken to the place of execution and hanged by the neck until you are dead. May the Lord have mercy on your soul. Renée's lawyers attempted to appeal the verdict, but it was ultimately upheld. Janine had been brought in by the defense for both trials, but during the appeal, the prosecution asked her if she had been coached to say certain things, like the fact that Lolly and Renee hadn't shared a bed in Disneyland. She admitted to them that she had been told what to say in the previous trial. A lot of what she had testified to wasn't true. Remember how Renee had told his sister in law to flush Esther's food in the hospital? Well, that came back to haunt him during his appeal. The prosecution leveraged it to prove that Rene had been poisoning Esther. Why else would he have forced Sheila to flush the food? If you're wondering what the climate was like in Vancouver at the time, Renee's lawyer attempted to appeal to the jury of mostly men by claiming that Renee was being prosecuted for his infidelity, that if every man in Vancouver was put on trial for adulterous behavior, there wouldn't be enough lampposts to hang them all. The jury found Reni guilty again, and he was sentenced to hang on January 23, 1968. Rene managed to lock out, though, and two weeks before he was sentenced to hang, Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson commuted the death sentence of Rene and 16 other people. He ended up facing a mandatory life sentence without eligibility for parole before serving 25 years. While Janine remained in Renee's custody, she went to live with Lolly and Dawn. That was until Lolly started seeing someone else. Renee found out and sent his sister Rose to pick up Janine. She never saw Lolly again. Renee continued to tell Janine that she wasn't allowed to speak to Esther's family. They would take her away from him if she did. That was his claim. Renee's manipulation of Janine continued well after she turned 18. In January of 1973, at the age of 19, Jeanine was sexually assaulted while walking home one night. She told her father what happened, and he asked her not to go to the police for fear that it would make the papers and ruin his opportunity for parole. Shortly after, Jeanine met her future husband, Dale, and they started seriously dating. Years prior, Janine had been hit by a car that was being driven by a police officer, and she was seriously hurt. Several years later, she received a settlement, money that Renee felt entitled to. When Dale told Janine that she wasn't giving her dad any of her money, he wrote her a threatening letter. He told her she should have been grateful he was there for her after she was assaulted. After serving less than 10 years of his sentence, René was let out on pre-release and was staying in a trailer on the grounds of the prison. Janine went to visit him for the last time in 1976. René was released on full parole in 1979. He never tried contacting Janine. Dr. Heather Burke stated in Eve's book that René was a psychopath. When he didn't get what he wanted from people, he cast them off. People were just a means to an end for him, and once they no longer served his needs, he got rid of them, just like he did with Esther. Renée's freedom was short-lived, and he ended up dying in 1982 from pancreatic cancer. Janine had hoped that maybe he would finally confess to murdering her mother on his deathbed, but he died before she could get to see him. Janine married Dale in 1977, and they had their first daughter, Lindsay, in 1980. Janine had not divulged her family history to her daughters, but in 1992, Lindsay was slated to go on a class trip to the Vancouver Police Museum. And if you've ever been to the police museum, then you know that there is an exhibit on Esther Castellani's murder. Janine called the museum and understandably requested they cover up The exhibit so that she could be the one to tell her daughters their family story. You might be wondering what happened to Lolly and Dawn. Well, Lolly remarried Ron Fairweather in 1970 and they moved to White Rock. Dawn disliked his mother so much, he moved out of the house as soon as he graduated high school. A lot of people wonder if Lolly played a part in Esther's murder. There's no doubt that she did what she could to cover up for Rennie. She lied about their affair, she pretended to be his wife on multiple occasions, and not to mention showing up to court in Esther's coat. But what makes me believe that Lolly was complicit on some level in Esther's murder is that Don told Eve Lazarus that he believed his mother was evil, that he didn't know or care whether or not she was alive, and that she never should have had children. Maybe that's why she was attracted to Renee. We usually seek out qualities and partners that we share. I have always found the case of the milkshake murder fascinating because from a young age, we're taught that monsters hide in the dark. They lurk in the shadowy corners of our rooms or under our beds. But the truth is that real monsters walk among us every day in broad daylight, and Renée Castellani is no exception. That's a wrap on season one. I look forward to seeing you in the new year as we explore more of Canada's possibly weird history. Until next time, I hope you have an amazing holiday season, however you celebrate it please make sure to take care of yourself during this time. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you so much. You are the very best. See ya in 2023.